Our sermon this afternoon is from Mr. Matthew Steele. It is entitled, Mothers and Love. Just give me one second. Thank sure. you. Sorry. Uh-huh. Hey. Hi. Two minutes. Thank you. Hi. Good afternoon. Sorry about hey, that. Hey, Hi, nice Hi. to meet you. Nice to meet you as well. Have you ever done one of these interviews over the camera before? No. Well, let me tell you a little bit about the job to get started with. It's not just um, a job. It's sort of probably the most important job. Uh, the title that we have going right now is Director of Operations, but it's really kind of so much more than that. Responsibilities and requirements are, are really quite extensive. Uh, first category for the requirements would be mobility. This job requires that you must be able to work standing up most or really all of the time, uh, constantly on your feet, constantly bending over, constantly exerting yourself, a high level of stamina. Uh, uh, okay. That's a lot. For how many, like, for how many hours? Uh, 135 hours to unlimited hours a week. It's basically 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I'm sure you'll have a chance from time to time to maybe just sit down here and there, yeah? Uh, you mean like a break? Yeah. Uh, no, there are no breaks available. Is, th is that even legal? Oh, yeah, of course, yeah. Okay, yeah. so like no lunch? You can or... have lunch, but only when the associate is done eating their lunch. Uh, I think that's a little intense. No. no. Not That's crazy. Now, this position requires excellent negotiation and interpersonal skill. We're really looking for someone that might have a degree in uh, medicine, in finance, and the culinary arts. You must be able to wear several hats. Associate needs constant attention. Sometimes they have to stay up with an associate throughout the night. Being able to work in a chaotic environment, if you, if you had a life, we'd ask you to sort of give that life up. No vacations. In fact, Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's, and holidays, the workload is going to go up, and we demand that with, with a happy disposition. Uh, that's almost cruel. <laughs> that's almost uh, a very, very sick, twisted joke. Right, but when there's time to sleep or... Oh, no time to sleep. Yeah, all-encompassing, all almost. That's exactly right. 365 days a year? Yes. No, that's, that's inhumane. That's, that's very insane. The meaningful connections that you make and the, the feeling that you get from really helping your associate are immeasurable. Also, let's cover the salary. The position is going to pay absolutely nothing. Excuse me? No. Nobody's doing that for free. Yeah, pro bono. <laughs> completely for free. No! What if I told you there's someone that actually currently uh, holds this position right now? Billions of people, actually. Who? Moms. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Moms. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> oh! <laughs> And they meet every requirement, oh, don't wow. they? Oh my God, moms are the best. Yeah, there's no pay. They're 24 hours. They're always there. Now I'm thinking about my mom. Yeah, and what are you thinking about her? I'm thinking about all those nights and everything. Thank you so much for everything you do. I know it doesn't seem like I appreciate all of it, but I definitely do. So, mom, I want to say thank you for everything that you've done. I love you very much. You've been there through thick and thin. My mom is just awesome. She's awesome. Ah, oh, we've got one crier. Ah, I kind of teared up when I watched that the first time, too. Pretty, uh, pretty impressive resume that uh, these moms hold, didn't you say? Oh, yes, please. Has anybody seen that before? Yeah. Uh, floating around on Facebook. And uh, it's pretty moving, isn't it? It reminds us of, uh, of what our mothers have done for us. And then, unfortunately, reminds the mothers what in the world they've been doing. Who would want that job? Who decides that they want that job? 
If you're a mother, would you please stand up for a second? These are the people that decide they want that job. Lucille, stand up. Okay, you can sit. Thank you. You know, I, I, I know that uh, there's lots of, I guess, traditions in, in the world that we don't observe, uh, and rightly so. Um, but I think Mother's Day, and, and equally so Father's Day, is something that we can make room for, would you agree? Um, and so I asked the question again, <laughs> who would sign up for that job? Of course, going into it, you're probably not thinking about that list of things, are you? You're motivated by other things. And when I think about uh, Mother's Day, I think about my own mother and the mother of my children. The first scripture that comes to mind is one that we read oftentimes in, in a, a, a very different context. And I think, though, that this scripture is really the descriptor, the ultimate job description, if you will, for mother. So if you would, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, beginning of verse 1. Paul says, though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. You ever think about those words? I mean, it's a beautiful passage. How many times have we read it? It's, it's poetry, isn't it, by the Apostle Paul? And yet when we look deep into that, it's really a powerful thing in our life. That the attainment of knowledge the ability to understand and unlock all mysteries and have faith so that we can move mountains. Move mountains. Falls back in obscurity compared to the power of love. Love is everything. Even faith itself, even faith that we know is so very important is meaningless without love. Why is that? Why is that? Well, is it knowledge? Is it wisdom? Is it faith? Is it understanding the mysteries of the universe that makes an exhausted mother climb out of bed another time to go and take care of her child? No. It's not knowledge. It's not wisdom. It's instinct and love. It is love. He says, love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. It does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. And if that's not a description of a mother, then I don't know what is. This is the epitome of motherhood. And I can remember myself, I mean, you know, how many times I would try my mother's patience. How many times I'd push her to the brink and feel her hot breath on my face as she's telling me off. But all out of love. All out of love. The thing I remember the most is waking up as a child, on a, just kind of dizzy and, and disorientated because I had had yet another ear infection during the night 
I had had another super high fever, and I was, you know, just out of my mind. I was uh, seeing things and screaming at the top of my lungs, waking up thinking, who in the world is screaming? And it's me. And who is right there but my mother? She's getting cold flannels, as we call them in England, face cloths, dipped in cold water and cooling me down and trying to calm me down. And she's giving me medicine. She's giving me comfort. All of these times I can just remember. Every time my mother was there, enduring all things, enduring all the stuff that I got up to. That's what love does. That is what really is the epitome of love. She, of course, then had to function the next day, right? And still had to do all the things that she had to do after having probably hardly any sleep at all. And then I'm pretty sure, because ear infections are not a one-night deal, pretty sure the next night was the same. And maybe the next and the next. Just a small example of how love enables someone to endure pretty much anything. And I'm sure each one of us has similar memories, don't we? Similar recollections. Wisdom, faith, not even knowledge could enable a woman to climb out of that bed that she so desperately needs to stay in to sleep to take care of her child, her baby, whoever that may be. It's love that is that motivator. Gives her that energy. Love suffers long and is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It doesn't behave rudely. It doesn't seek its own. It doesn't seek its own. And I, again, I just have the image of my mother sacrificing for us kids. You know, we didn't have too terribly much growing up. And she would sacrifice. You know, she would really need some clothing. We would really need some new things, but we needed new school uniforms. So we got the new school uniforms. We would sacrifice. This kind of thing is a very real example in our lives of the power of love. And there was another woman that we find that had this power, that had this love. She's found in the scriptures. And she is, in many ways, the very definition of this kind of love. A selfless woman. Selfless and of great endurance and of grace. Her name was Hannah. We all know the story of Hannah. But it's such a good story. And it's worthwhile digging into again and again. And it's worth noting that the book of Samuel opens with Hannah. It doesn't open with Samuel. Because without Hannah, there wouldn't be a Samuel, would there? And it starts with this beautiful woman and the prayer that she prays. We find it in 1 Samuel chapter 1, starting in verse 1. It says, Now there was a certain man of the Matthian, Zophan, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jer Jeroham, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, of Ephraimite. And he had two wives, and the name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Paniah. Paniah had children, but Hannah had no children. And this man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh, who is also also, the two sons of Eli, uh, Hophni and Phinehas, the, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Hananiah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion. For he loved Hannah. And although the Lord had closed her womb, you know, he still loved her. And, and her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. 
So it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. <laughs> Talk about torture. Okay, it's coming to that time of year. We're going up to worship the Lord. Okay, bring it on. Bring on your ridicule and your, your comments and pro- provocation. Just awful. But I think there's a particular type of sorrow, isn't there? A very deep sorrow that can come on a woman who is unable to bear children. And I don't obviously confess to know what that is like. But I imagine it to be the loss of something or someone that you never even had in the first place. And we know what loss is like don't we? We mourn the loss of maybe friends or loved ones, family members, and so on. And, you know, at least in those circumstances, we have something to remember them by, don't we? We have some items, a family Bible, or some jewelry, or things that connect us to that person, even though they're gone. But when you cannot even connect to that person because they never existed, that is a different kind of sorrow and loss. Such a deep heart in this woman's heart, and even more so because of the culture that she was in. I mean, it is her job to provide children for her husband. And then even worse, we have another woman that's not having any problems at all. Very, very difficult. And yet, she could not have children. But in spite of that, in spite of that, her husband was still a great blessing to her. And I think that's just really positive because I wonder if that was commonplace. You know, he loved her. He didn't belittle her. He didn't demote her to the rank of a servant to help the other wife take care of the other baby cherished her. In fact, he did the opposite of demoting her. He raised her up. He says, and this is his way of raising her up, which is kind of a guy's way of raising her up, right? The Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? That's a guy's answer, isn't it? Yeah. You're better than ten sons, sure. Didn't quite understand, did he? He didn't quite understand. But it does speak to the fact that he was happy with his life, right? He wasn't disappointed in her. He was generous and gracious. He didn't blame her. Not at all. But he didn't quite understand. And so in verse 9 it says, So Hannah arose after they'd finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. And now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look upon the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child. Just one. A male child. That's all she asked for. Then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and no razor shall come upon his head. So think about that. She asked for just one child. And then she was going to give this child back. Just one. And she so longed for the son. She so loved that son, even though he didn't exist yet. But before he was even conceived, he promised his life back to the Lord. If God would just grant her that one request. Just one request. Does that remind you of anyone? 
little different in the story, but she is a daughter of her father Abraham, who was willing, wasn't he? This precious son of his precious wife Sarah, he was willing to give that son back to the Lord if he asked for it. She was willing to give her son up to God if he would grant her this request. That is not desperation. That's just heartbreak. That is just a deep longing to be fulfilled as a woman as a, and as a, as a mother. And it was such a heartbreak that, you know, she appears to be drunk, doesn't she? The priest is like, what's going on with this woman? Have you ever had prayers like that? Probably not in public, right? Fortunately, we don't have to come to church. And I saw Ken the other day. He was kind of going crazy over here. looked drunk to me. You know, we don't have to do that, do we? But I think we've all experienced those kinds of moments, those kinds of prayers deep, mournful prayers with tears. And I, you know, I remember when uh, my son Joseph was almost at death's door in the NICU. He had a terrible infection. It was a third of babies die from that infection. And another third need severe surgery to save their life. And I remember just praying with tears that God would intervene that he would save my son. And then I just, I remember being hit between the eyes. I'm asking for God to save my son through the death of his. And I kind of did what we read about here in a little bit. Finished my prayer, wiped my tears, and went on with, with the day in faith. God had heard my prayer. So we've had these kind of experiences, different circumstances perhaps. So we know the kind of prayer, this deep prayer that she was praying. It says in verse 12, and it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart and only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. You must be drunk. And so he said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. I do not consider, do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. And then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition, which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Does she remind you of anybody else with that last statement? A little different a story, but... Nonetheless, the, kind of, the same kind of spirit. She almost says verbatim what Mary says to the angel. Almost verbatim. Let your servant find favor in your sight. You know, it's an amazing thing when you consider these kinds of connections and how God uses them to show forth salvation, show forth his plan of how he works to raise up the barren, the small, the weak through the lives of these people. And it's interesting, Eli's statement right there as well, he says, go in peace and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. And I don't see anywhere in this passage where he actually knew what she was asking. But yet, he's almost saying, okay, this is going to be granted. And so, then in verse 19, it says, Then they rose early in the morning, worshipped before the Lord, and returned 
and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew his wife Hannah, and the Lord remembered her. I love that little phrase. The Lord remembered her. I mean, who was she? She was just some Israelite woman that happened to pray this prayer. And, okay. Why would the great God that we know remember her? Well, of course, it's because he's the great God that we know that he would remember her. (laughs) He didn't even forget her. He remembered her. She was a daughter of Abraham, a faithful daughter of the king. And so it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, because I have asked for him of the Lord. Now, you know, we can go on with the story of Samuel, Samuel, but everything begins right here. Everything about Samuel's life and how he will work for God begins right here. And it's really interesting that she decided to name him Samuel. Because not only was it a recognition that God had heard her, that he had granted her this amazing gift, but it was also a reminder that she made a promise. So every time she would call this little boy in from outside and say his name, it was a reminder that she is going to have to give him back. At some point, she is going to have to follow on through with the promise that she made. Now the mountain, Elkanah and his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Elkanah, her husband, said, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. And then the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. It's kind of interesting, too. I've always thought that 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 phrase, only let the Lord establish his word, his word was a little awkward. But it's, it's interesting, the, the Masoretic text, the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Septuagint, and the Syriac all actually use the word your instead of his. So it could be read, only let the Lord establish your word. Remember your promise? <laughs> You're not going to stay at home. He's not going to stay with you forever. You've got to remember your promise. And that's interesting to me because either way, even if that translation's a little murky, her husband completely supported her decision. Right? She she went to God. She prayed this prayer. She made this promise. He heard her prayer. He granted that request. Her husband wasn't involved. Well, I mean, he was involved. He wasn't involved in this promise, was he? But he respected it. He respected her. He respected the the promise that she made. And he recognized the gift that God had given. And I find that fascinating. Because what if he had turned around and said, "Uh, no, I don't think so. I need all the sons I can get. I've got work for these, these guys when they're big enough. Right? What would have happened then? But he didn't. He didn't do that. And I think it shows the love and respect that he had for his wife, that he honored her promise as well. Now, there's a little bit of a debate among scholars as to what does weaned mean? When is the child weaned? You know, and there's kind of a range that I've seen. I did, I did a, a, another search again last night. And the range, again, is uh, it's 6 to 12 years. Okay. I don't know if that's right or wrong. But it seems to me that she would not have dumped an infant, right, on the tabernacle. 
I mean, this is a bunch of men, after all, priests, right? They've got jobs to do. They don't have time to raise a child. So she is going to wait until that child is at least able to, to do some chores, right? Is able to, to function, understand what's being asked of them, do some things, carry some things. So yeah, 6, 12, somewhere in there sounds right to me. Is that long enough? for a mother to have a child? <laughs> no. Not at all. My boys are about to be 12. I'm not ready to ship them off to a tabernacle somewhere. Maybe when they're 18, that might be a different story. Okay, mother says no. But here's crunch time, isn't it? This is coming. This is happening. And this is the promise that she made. So it says in verse 24, that when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bowls, one ephah of flour, a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh. And he was, and the child was young. <laughs> How old's young? And then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here, praying to the Lord for this child. And I prayed, and the Lord granted my, me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worshipped the Lord there. Leave your child. I'll leave him there now. And not only that, they brought sacrifices as well. They brought offering to God. Grateful. Grateful for the time that they had with that child. Incredible faith. And, a, and a incredible ability to follow through on a promise. Trusting God. It's almost too much to accept, isn't it? That we could give up any of our children, especially when they are little ones. Young, whatever that is. And then not see them, but once a year for the rest of your life. Because that's when she saw Samuel. Every year they would come back, and every year she would bring him new clothing and a new, a new belt for him to wear that she'd made for him every year. This woman was really pretty amazing. She was faithful. She was true. And just think of this. What if she had not been the kind of woman that she was? What if she didn't ever pray that prayer for a son? What if once she had been given a son, decided to keep him and not follow through on the promise. How different the history of Israel would be. How different our world would be. You might say, well, how's that? Well, I think in our congregation we have at least two people that have the name Samuel, don't we? So we have... Samuel Witt, and then Curtis, I think is his first name is Samuel, is that right? And Larry? And, oh, that's right. Yeah? So, if she had not followed through with her promise, would the word, would the name Samuel have entered into our English language? Kind of interesting, isn't it? Because where do we get it from? We get it from the Bible. Now, I suppose you could argue, well, I'm sure there were plenty of other Samuels out there in Israel at the time. I, I don't know. But in our English language, I'm pretty sure Samuel came into being in English because of the Bible. So it's interesting. 
how much the decision and the faithfulness and the, the strength that this woman had to follow through on her promise changed not only Israel, but could have changed negatively if she had not followed through the world. But certainly the history of Israel would have been very different. The powerful life that Samuel led, the fact that he was a leader and a prophet for these people, and led these people to the time of the king. A very significant moment in the history of Israel. And all because of the love that a woman had for a son that wasn't yet born. Powerful. The love that she had for her son, even before he was conceived, and without that love, and without that love towards God as well, Samuel and his story may never have happened or would not have happened. And I dare say the knowledge, the wisdom, the faith, clearly the faith, and the trust that this woman had in God, she absolutely instilled into her son. In some very short period of time. Right. A short window of time she had, but he grew in stature and in power and in strength in God because of her. And I'm sure long after his mother had passed, the things that she had poured into him, even just at a young age, guided him, encouraged him, and took him through the rest of his life. Just like our mothers have imparted those things to us. And as we know in the story is Hannah well, God gives her three more sons, two daughters. You know what that number is, right? It's five, a biblical number for grace. She was given grace because of her obedience, because of her faith and her love. But there's something else here I want to share, and it's something that my wife reminded me uh, of this morning. You know, whenever you look in the Bible and you see the stories that we have of barren women, women that are not able to have children, at least at first, the fruit of their womb go on to do remarkable things. Amazing things. God has a very special plan for those children. They're very important. If you look at scripture, you have, of course, Sarah and Isaac. And he became the father of the nation of Israel, or continuing on in that line. And then Hannah and Samuel, as we've just read. And, and you know, eventually Samuel establishing David's royal line and, and how influential he was over the life of David. And then Samson. We tend to forget about, about Samson. He was born of a woman that was barren. And he did uh, some pretty incredible things. And there's a great story there of restoration, and reconciliation, redemption. And then there is a passage like this in Isaiah 54, and verse 1, and 1 through 17, actually. And this scripture is really special for Renee and I, because I, I, I think I've shared this before, but after we... Uh, completed the IVF process, and, and, and at the very end of that process, of course, the, the doctors implant embryos into the mother. And so uh, we were there in Oklahoma City, and this uh, facility has a hotel attached to it. Um, it's a medical facility and has this hotel. And the reason being is because after implantation, the mom-to-be has to lay flat for like, was it Three long days. <laughs> yeah, completely flat on her back for three days. And, um, you know, so they, we finished the procedure and they wheel her through on the hospital bed into the hotel side and we get into our room. And then after she gets comfortable on the bed, she decides I'm going to... Uh, 
break the Bible open. Have you ever done that? Just in the middle? Uh, wherever I land, I'm going to start to read. Right? Anybody ever done that? Yeah. We've done that. It's hard to do on an iPad, though. Well, this is the scripture that she landed on when she broke it open right after we completed the implantation of the embryos. Isaiah 54 and verse 1, it says, Sing, O barren, you who have not born, break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not labored with child, for more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married woman, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your, your, your stakes. For you shall expand to the right and to the left. And your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. How about that? Powerful. A very powerful message for us. Just a powerful and com com comforting And I suppose, you know, some people would say, well, it's coincidence. I don't think so. Nope. It's not coincidence. Right after the implantation of fertilized embryos, with all of the work up to that point, and everything that Renee had had to go through to get to that point, and then she opens the Bible at this precise It says, do not fear, for you will not be ashamed. Neither be disgraced, for you will not be put to shame. For you will forget the shame of your youth, and you will not remember the reproach of your widowhood anymore. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name, and your redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. He is called the God of the whole earth. For the Lord has called you like a woman forsaken and grieved in spirit, like a youthful wife when you were refused, says your God. For a mere moment I have forsaken you, but with great mercies I will gather you. With a little wrath I hid my face for a moment, but with everlasting kindness I will have mercy on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. For this is like the waters of Noah to me, for as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no longer cover the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be angry with you nor rebuke you. For the mountains shall depart and the hills be removed, but my kindness shall not depart from you. Nor shall my covenant of peace be removed, says the Lord, who has mercy on you. O you afflicted one, tossed with tempest and not comforted, behold, I will lay your stones with colorful gems and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of rubies and of your, your gates of crystal, and all your wall, walls of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established, you shall be far from oppression. You shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Indeed, they shall surely assemble, but not because of me. Whoever assembles against you shall fall for your sake. Behold, I have created the blacksmith who blows the coals in the fire, who brings forth an instrument for his work. I have created the spoiler to destroy. No weapon formed against you shall prosper, and every tongue which rises against you in judgment, you shall condemn. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Just a beautiful passage, isn't it? And it pulls in so many elements that we can read elsewhere. There's, there's elements here of the new Jerusalem in, in Revelation. There's elements here of God's restoration in Israel. And you know, this passage is very much about a barren woman, isn't it? A barren woman that has not given birth. And that's really interesting. Because at first pass, we would say, well, this is the nation of Israel. It might be in type, but she's just a type because she did have children, didn't she? She was once barren from Sarah, but 
she did have children. And they, they're on the earth today. You could say, well, it's Jerusalem. But Jerusalem has had its children, hasn't it? So what's the fullest manifestation of this scripture? What is the fulfillment of this scripture? I think we find it in that last verse that I just said. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me, says the Lord. Who has their righteousness from the Lord? It's the same. It's those of us in Christ Jesus. Because our righteousness is none of our own, is it? It is from him. He has saved us. We collectively right here as the church are this woman. And you think about it, the church hasn't given birth yet, has she? She hasn't given birth yet. She appears to the world barren. But God says, get ready. Broaden out. Spread out the tents. Make room. Because on his return, his bride will give birth and will fill the earth with her children. Just powerful imagery that we have here. And I think it's fully, fully manifested in the church. And it is shown in type in Israel and perhaps in, in Jerusalem. And all of it, all of this, only made possible and singularly motivated by not by wisdom, not even by faith, right? Love. It is the motivator that has motivated God from the beginning. And it is from him that we get this kind of love. The love that God has toward each and every one of us and has shown us by the love that a mother has for her children, be they born or unborn. If you would turn back with me to 1 Corinthians 13. Picking it back up in verse 8. Paul says, love, it never fails. Where there are prophecies, they will fail. He says they will fail. There are prophecies that are going to fail. Which ones? I don't know. But he says, where there are prophecies, they will fail. Where there are tongues, eventually all talking will cease. Where there is knowledge, it will vanish away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. <laughs> you know, when we have the fullest manifestation of God and Jesus Christ here on this earth, the kingdom of God, maybe the new Jerusalem, the new heavens and the new earth, at that moment, whatever that moment is, what other words is there? What other prophecies can there be, be said? What else could be possibly spoken? When that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part will be done away. The love that a mother has for her children, I think probably is the closest example on earth of the love that God has for us. It just endures all things. It hopes all things. It endures vomit. It endures sleepless nights. It endures belligerent children. It endures all things. Just like our Father in heaven. Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child, and I thought as a child. But when I became a man, he said, I put away the childish thing. And I used to look at that scripture and say, yes, but now in, in Christ and in our faith, we're not children, we're, we're men. Wrong. What Paul is saying here is, I'm still a child. In the physical realm, when I was a child, yes, I did silly things, but I put away those silly things when I became a man. So, as I am a child now, a spiritual child, he says, for now I see, like a child, in a mirror, dimly. But 
when I am finally full, when I am finally mature enough to be born, then I will see face to face. Very much like a child in the womb, isn't it? It hears the sound, sees some light, and the, the noises and the environment of, of their mother's body and then the, the, the sound outside. And then they're finally born and really start to see the reality, the real reality of the world. He says, For now we see like a child as in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know just as I am known. And now abide faith, hope, love, these three. The greatest of these is love. With grateful hearts, we give thanks, don't we? We give thanks for our mothers. These amazing women who have loved us before we ever existed. And amazing even more so because they loved us after we existed. We're grateful for them. They have given us life. They have taught us. They've equipped us to have a fruitful life. And we are also grateful for our Father in Heaven, who by His very nature created love and gave us the gift of our own.